When I was being wired up every day, the FBI said, Mark, if these guys catch you, they're going to kill you. And I heard that every week and uh, tried to take my own life. And someone read about that in the newspaper from Raleigh, North Carolina area, Mm -hmm. CFO of a pharmaceutical biotech company. And he reached out to me and he said, uh, Mark, prison is going to be the beginning of your life and you're going to find your true purpose in life with the journey you're ready to start. And this is seven months before I go to prison. And he started taking me through a Bible study called Operation Timothy and introduced me to God and introduced me to Jesus. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to today's episode of Christ and Culture. I'm Nathaniel Williams, the editor and content manager here at the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Today on our episode, Dr. Benjamin Quinn will talk to Mark Whitaker. Mark's story involves, of all things, corporate greed, the FBI, a whistleblower, redemption, and mission. It's a remarkable story. You're not going to want to miss it. But first, we want to begin today's episode with our new segment called Together We Go. In this segment, we want to highlight students, alumni, and friends of Southeastern Seminary who work in everyday vocations. We want to share how they're using their work to fulfill the Great Commission. Today's guest on Together We Go is Kim Wiley. I serve as a career coach for a local high school in South Mississippi. My experience at Southeastern, and particularly with the CFC, taught me how to listen well and engage in tough conversations, which is a necessary requirement when speaking with high school students. And it also just helped me see how God can provide in crazy ways his ultimate faithfulness in providing wisdom and divine appointments and things like that. So basically just reinforced my faith in order to do any job well and in accordance to his glory and relying upon him. I would appreciate prayers in uh, asking for God's wisdom as I engage with high school students with important discussions about their future and just asking for just divine confidence in knowing how to guide and direct as well as protection against spiritual warfare because there is a great deal within a high school realm. I'm Kim Wiley and together we go. Kim Wiley serves as a career coach at a high school on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. She holds a master's degree from Southeastern Seminary in Christian Studies. Hey, Southeastern family. This May, we want to ask you to consider supporting Southeastern by praying, sending, and giving. We want to ask you to remember these three dates. On May 13th, we will celebrate graduation on our campus. Please pray for the 273 new Southeastern graduates as they go well-equipped to wherever God calls them. Sunday, May 15th is Seminary Sunday on the SBC calendar. Please take this opportunity to share Southeastern with others and to recommend us to any men and women seeking to pursue theological education. Finally, on May 19th, we will recognize our charter date with a day of giving. Generous donors have provided a $25,000 matching gift challenge for this day. Please consider giving to support our students and remember that every dollar given is one less dollar a student will need to pay in tuition. So this may join us in our mission to serve the church 
and fulfill the Great Commission by praying for our graduates, sending students to be equipped, and by giving. Because you pray, send, and give, we are going. Corporate greed, whistleblower, redemption, mission, few people's lives stories are as varied as our guest today, Mark Whitaker, who has a remarkable testimony of uh, the Lord changing his life through a very unusual set of circumstances. Mark Whitaker is a seasoned executive whose life is a testimony to redemption and second chances. Mark is the highest level executive ever to turn whistleblower in the United States history. I want to say that again because it's a big deal. Liest, highest level executive ever to turn whistleblower in U.S. history. His undercover work with the FBI was the inspiration even for the movie The Informant, starring Matt Damon as Mark Whitaker, and the Discovery Channel also did a further documentary really telling more of that story. Uh, today we talk with Mark and his wife about their story. Mark, let's just jump in. If Just tell us the short version of the story, and at multiple points I'm going to turn to your wife, Ginger, and say, now tell me from your perspective what was going on. But Mark, yeah, when first. I was a lot younger, man, 32 years old, I'm 65 now, so you're talking 33 years ago, I was uh, divisional president of a Fortune 56, number 56 on the mm-hmm. Fortune 500, and corporate vice president of the whole company called ADM Archer Daniels Midland, and $70 billion in revenue, not $70 million, but $70 billion, 30,000 employees, and I was number four ranked executive, reported right to the vice chairman. And there were three executives out of 30,000 employees. There were three people above me, a 75-year-old CEO and a 69-year-old president. So the executives above me were double, sometimes almost triple my age. And I tell you, I, I didn't know God at that time, and I was not a Christian. And this is an example, really, of selfish leadership, mm-hmm. what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were mentoring me, but they were we all need mentors in our life, but they were teaching me and sharing with me how to do price fixing, something that they they had been doing 12 years before I joined the company. And the fact that they were getting older, they were teaching me how to take over an international cartel eventually when they were no longer there. And they treated me unbelievable. My first week there, I got my own jet. I was eight years there. I had my own Falcon 50. You're 32 years old with your own jet. My own jet, Falcon 50 for eight years. Uh, The seven top executives each got their own jet, and I was number four ranked executive. And I bought the CEO's home. Uh, that was the previous CEO's home, too, the one who founded Archer Daniels yeah. Midland 115 years earlier. So a 13,000-square-foot home for the eight years I was there. I bought that home my third week working Let's not there. rush past that. 13,000-square-feet. Eight-car garage. I'm not going to mention that right this second I live in 341-square-feet, so I don't know what 13,000 is <laughs> even like. But nonetheless, that's amazing to continue yeah. on. Yeah, eight-car garage uh, full of cars, Ferrari, two BMWs, wow. two Mercedeses. This was a seven-figure salary every year with bonuses and stock options, seven figures. And this is 33 years ago, wow. seven figures. And I got caught up in the world. Best way probably to describe it is I was Justin Bieber before Justin Bieber. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the mansion, the jet, and I got caught up in the world. Yeah. And in all the world's trappings, and Ginger became a Christian 10 years before me. She was a Christian uh, at this point when I started this company. And we met, Ginger and I met when she was in seventh grade and I was in eighth grade. Went to our high school proms, uh, proms together. And she saw the change in me that I got obsessed and addicted to this lifestyle. Hmm. 
and uh, she wasn't willing to. Uh, she she definitely was. She was definitely going to put a stop to it. That, wow. That type of that type of greed, addiction, and obsession. So let me, let me back up just a little bit. So you guys meet in junior high, and you're mm-hmm. hanging out. You're 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 going to the prom together in high school. You end up getting married. Well, how old are you when you get married? Twenty one and twenty. I finished a master's degree at Ohio State, and she was at Ohio State too. And we finished uh, my master's degree before I went and got a Ph.D. in biochemistry from Cornell okay. in New York. So tell we me about married. that. You, you, you do a, a Ph.D. in biochemistry. How do you go from that to then sort of this executive leadership in sh- such a short period of time? Yeah, I tell you something that most top leaders, I was president of the biotech division at ADM, but most CEOs and COOs and top leadership of, of pharmaceutical companies, biotech companies, most of them are Ph.D.s. Hmm. In biochemistry, and I was extremely ambitious. And prior to that, I was was vice president of a company for six years prior to who ADM okay. hired me from. And I was vice president of that company doing acquisitions and mergers, living in Germany hmm. for four years. And that's where ADM hired me from. I was doing some joint ventures with them, yeah. actually, and they hired me away. So it was it was a fast career because by the time I was 32, I was only seven years yeah. from finishing my Cornell uh, PhD. So. You're at ADM. You've got this this great responsibility. You said earlier today you, you worked with them for a good two years before you even learned of the kind of nefarious activity that's going on. So just for clarity, what does ADM ADM do? That uh, you, you said that all of us have probably have spent money on ADM. You just didn't realize it. Yeah, so what does ADM by do? far they're one of the largest food additive companies in the world. So if if your uh, the listeners are are buying a Pillsbury or a Kraft or a Campbell's soup or a Kellogg cereal yeah. or a Coca Cola or a Sprite or a Gold Peak tea or an orange juice, it would be almost impossible to buy a food and beverage at a grocery store and you look at that ingredient label on the side that doesn't have something from ADM in it, one of the largest food additive companies in the world. And how were how were they fixing prices? How did this all, this cartel situation, how did that sort Well, it out? started 12 years before I joined the company, but how they do it is meeting with the competitors and actually instead of competing to each other and driving the prices down, mm. they were working together almost like it's one company, yeah. working together and say, hey, let's take a little less volume each where we're not stepping on each other and to raise these prices. And some yeah. of them we raised fourfold and fivefold. And it ended up earning hundreds of million dollars and often $1 billion extra year of profit. $70 billion company, we were $4 billion in profit. And sometimes $1 billion of that came from the price fixing. So, so it's significant. Yeah. So you told that uh, you, you find out about this. You're basically being groomed to, to oversee it. this. Mm-hmm. Ginger finds out about this. How does how does all that go down? Well, she saw we were uh, seven months, two years of the company. They waited till they trusted me and waited till I was part of the family till they brought me into the cartel. And they're really training me to eventually take it over because by that time, the CEO was 77 years old and the president was 71. So they knew they couldn't keep doing it forever. So I was being trained and equipped to eventually take it over. And Ginger, uh, uh, it was November 5th, 1992. And she said, Mark, something's changed here. I've known you since you're 14 and she was 13. And she said, these last seven months, something's weighing on your shoulders. You're so, something's different these last seven months. And she said, especially you're on the phone a lot, three or four hours a night on the phone. And the reason why I was on the phone three or four hours every night, because most of her competition was in Southeast Asia, Hmm. Japan and Singapore and Korea. And in Decatur, Illinois, where ADM's headquarters are, eight o'clock at night is eight o'clock in the morning, the next morning in Southeast Asia. So I explained that to her, that I had to be on the phone. I named the companies who I was talking with. And she said, isn't that your competitors? Why would you be talking with them? And I told her about how they're equipping me to do this, how they're mentoring me. 
and that if I'm going to continue to move up, this is what I've got to do. And yeah. I said, we live in a mansion. We got a jet. We had horse riding stables where our kids ride an inside arena during the wintertime on our property that we yeah. own golf greens on the property. I mean, it was a, it was a mansion. This is the kind of home that probably a Bill Gates would wow. would live in. And and I said, you know, if we want to maintain this lifestyle, our kids are in private schools and and she's driving an old used Jeep, and I'm driving a Ferrari because the cars just didn't mean anything to her. She was focused on Jesus yeah. at that point in her life. And I shared that with her, and she said, now, is that legal? And I said, well, they t- it's not legal, <laughs> but they told me everybody does it. And if you're in the commodity business, this is how you what you got to do. Wow. And if I'm going to survive at this company and continue to move up, I've got to do this. And then she asked me the question. I remember she said, well, Mark, who pays for this extra billion dollars a year? And I said, well, basically consumers do. If they're buying $50 worth of groceries on average, which is probably what it was then. That's probably 100 or so now. Yeah. But, you know, this is 30 years ago. I said they buy $50 worth of groceries. They pay 3 or $4 extra for the ingredients that are price fixed in that. It's, it's, it's really insignificant. And I remember her asking me, she said, Mark, my grandma's on $200 a week Social Security. Her grocery bill is her highest mm. expense because yeah. her house is paid for. And we're ripping her off, and we're living in a mansion with an eight-car garage. Yeah. She said, I don't know if I can live with this. And then she said she was going to go pray about it, and we talk about it later. And then you knew you were in trouble. <laughs> I did. I knew I was in trouble when she said she was going to pray about it. Ginger, how, how do you remember that episode of this story? Oh, I, I can see it vividly because all I could see was my family, my parents, my grandma, my friends, my sister and brother thinking – they're all contributing. They're all being stolen from. And how am I going to sit across the table from them at Thanksgiving or Christmas or any mm. other time yeah. knowing this and knowing how they have to struggle? You know, they weren't, you know, wealthy. So um, it just a- absolutely aggravated me. I was so mad. Uh, and, and I'd been brought up that you don't steal from anybody. Yeah. And this yeah. was basically it's stealing. Yeah. They're just stealing from the consumers. So within a very short period of time, you're sitting in front of the FBI. She came back a couple hours praying about it, and she said, uh, Mark, uh, God led her to a decision. I said, good, i got to get back to my price-fixing meetings here, phone calls. And she said, no, God's led me a decision to turn you into the FBI. I said, Ginger, I could go to prison for price-fixing. Our CEO is a billionaire. He's 30 years there, best friends with President Clinton, on the phone on a regular basis with President Clinton, even flies on President Clinton's plane with him, like to President Nixon's funeral, for example. I said, this company is one of the 56 largest in America. They will destroy us. And I remember her vividly saying her CEO was bigger than my CEO. Her CEO was Jesus. <laughs> That's the best line of the day. That is so good and so true. So very quickly then, you're you're basically confessing to the FBI. Yes. So tell me what happens from there. Well, we're sitting with the uh, FBI for four hours. And the FBI says, now what's going on here? And I said, it's really nothing. You've got all these drug dealers to deal with and all these bank robbies, robberies. This is not worth talking about. And Ginger's uh, there, too. Uh, if I, she wasn't there, they probably would have never got the truth out of me. <laughs> and she said, and he said, well, how big is this? And I said, it's really not that big. You've got drug dealers to deal with and all this stuff. And, and Ginger said, it's a billion dollars. He said, a billion dollars? And he said, how long has this been going on? I said, it, you've got so many more important things to do. And Ginger <laughs> said, it's been going on for 12 years. Mm. And so through Ginger and I both, mainly through Ginger, he got all the, the truth out. And after four hours, I, uh, Ginger said, well, we can go home now, right? Uh, we had no lawyer. We were young and inexperienced. And, 
And the FBI said, well, you can't go home. You just confessed to a billion dollar a year crime. Even though you're involved only seven months, you're the only one that's ever confessed at this point. So we either have to arrest you today or you have to start wearing a wire for us mm. and be an informant starting tomorrow. And that's and how I became an informant. And you wore wire for how long? Wore wire every day, 18 hours a day for three years. And that's that's still the, the longest wiring of any one informant. Longest duration in history of anybody to wear a wire. Wow. And it became the largest price-fixing case in U.S. history, really? too. Started by a stay-at-home mom raising three young children. You said you said even the equipment that you wore for those three years is now in the FBI museum. museum. It's in the museum in D.C. Wow. So, all right, we'll fast forward a little bit. But so you wear a wire for three years. Uh, take us on from there. What happens when it's all exposed? And then what happens for you and your family? Well, the, they gave me a deal of a lifetime. Uh, the others were going to go, almost 30 people went to prison, four from just ADM alone. But price fixing involves other companies. Yeah. So about 30 total. Um, unbelievable seven-week trial with all those tapes and videos and everything we had. I mean, the evidence was just so, I mean, the evidence was rock solid. And uh, I was getting a six-month plea agreement, six months in prison. The others were going to go for several years. The lawyer, my lawyer called me in Chicago and said, Mark, they're giving you a deal of a lifetime. Six months, you go to prison. Now I'm 38 because I've wore a wire three years by this point. Said, uh, you go in at 38 and you come out at 38. And Ginger said, boy, Mark, sign it. Let's put it behind us. Six months, a Martha Stewart sentence, yeah. white-collar camp, and you're home. And I looked at Ginger and I looked at the FBI and I said, Ginger, you're the reason I'm in this mess in the first place. Mm. I had to wear a wire eight, nine, ten hours a day because of you. I had now got to go to prison six months because of because of her. And for that reason, I'm going to do the opposite you want me to do. And I ripped up the six-month plea agreement, fired the lawyer on the spot, went to court for three years. Now I'm almost uh, the end of my four, being 40, yeah. and got an eight-and-a-half-year sentence instead. Wow. So that's when things really begin to change. If it's not interesting up to this point, that's when things really change. And this is where this is where your story really pivots around mm-hmm. Christ. So tell us what happens there. Well, when I had an eight and a half year sentence, now it's no longer go in at 38 and come out at 38. I've, I've went through the courts already for three years. So now I'm into being 40, almost 41, and not getting out of prison to 49. So I was so depressed, knowing I could have went for six months. I pulled my car in one of those garages and wrote a 17-page letter to my to my family, to Ginger and my family, and I tried to kill myself. Mm. I could not imagine going to prison from age 40 to, to 49. And, um, and I was hospitalized for a month, treated for post-traumatic stress disorder, and some of the things that when you were wired for three years yeah. that, because uh, when I was being wired up every day, the FBI said, Mark, if these guys catch you, they're going to kill you. Yeah. And I heard that every week for three years. And these guys would have killed me, the ones who I was taping and uh, tried to take my own life. And someone read about that in the newspaper from Raleigh, North Carolina area, Mm. CFO of a pharmaceutical biotech company. And he reached out to me and he said, uh, Mark, prison is going to be the beginning of your life and you're going to find your true purpose in life with the journey you're ready to start. And this is seven months before I go to prison. And he started taking me through a Bible study called Operation Timothy and introduced me to God and introduced me to Jesus. When I was at ADM, I would have never listened to Mm. someone like that talking about God. I mean, she was a Christian and I was one ear and out the other. But the difference, the difference then was I was broken. I just had tried to take my own life. I was rock bottom and I was looking for hope Mm. at that point. And he planted a seed that uh, changed my life forever. And a couple of weeks in prison, another man showed up, Chuck Colson. Yeah. Two yeah. weeks, he read about me in the Washington Post after I was sentenced. Didn't know him. He was a stranger. Showed up, and he saw a lot of himself in what he was reading. Sure. 
He went to Brown. I went to Cornell. He went to college eight years to be a lawyer. I went to college eight years to be a Ph.D. in biochemistry. Uh, 32, he was White House counsel. And 32, I was divisional president of one of the biggest companies in the world. And by 40, we're both in prison earning yeah. $20 a month. Yeah. His 20 years before me. His in the 70s. This is 1998 for me at that time. And he reached out to me and uh, asked me if I you know, knew God and surrendered my life to Jesus. And I told him about being discipled for seven mm -hmm. months. And he said, well, why, why haven't you surrendered your life yet then? And I told him, I have eight years of college in the sciences. And I had professors that said that if you believe in God, you can't be a Ph.D. scientist. If you believe in God, you can't, you can't be in my class. Mm -hmm. And you hear that for eight years, everything that there is no God, evolution, Big Bang Theory, Darwinism. And because of that, I said, I, Ian Howes has given me hope, hmm. but I'm still not there yet because I, my education is all saying there is no God. And I never forget, he said, Mark, do you think there's a PhD scientist that believes in God? And this is my second week in prison. I said, no, absolutely not. And he started burying me with article after article and book after book. Some of the most well-known scientists in the world yeah. are strong Christians, yeah. but the universities don't, yeah. secular universities don't share that. Yeah. That's amazing. I'd love to ask more about that time in prison, but I want to move on. And Ginger, I know that's a big part of you moved everywhere. He was sort of stationed in prison. You and your family moved. And you talked about even kind of raising your, your kids From a visit through room. visitation on the weekends. But I want to jump to really what you're doing now. So you get out of prison and pretty quickly you, you said you, you were afraid that you would be just unemployable. Yeah, I learned heating and air conditioning because I thought at least there I, in prison yeah. as a trade, even with a PhD by Christian, because I didn't think I'd ever be hired again with my education. But that turned out not to be the case. You said you said upon your uh, sort of release from prison, you had multiple job offers. So tell us more of what you're doing now. Good. Yeah. Um, basically, in prison, uh, Cornell University, some of those professors did become Christians mm. over time. And they started bringing biotech and pharmaceutical companies to visit me in prison. And these companies would have me review their strategic plans and their patents. And four of them offered me jobs. Uh, the day after I got out, I joined one with a CEO, a Christian CEO. Yeah. I joined, and I didn't want to fall back in that greed trap, the trap that I was in all before earlier in my life. I was 49 at this point, started off someone like the level of college, yeah. and I became, uh, after four promotions, the COO and the number two of a cancer research biotech company in California, the number two executive after four promotions, but this time doing it God's way. Yeah, yeah. Being a servant leader in prison, I learned how to help guys get their GDs and learn how to, some of them were from out of the country. So I helped them learn how to read English and write English. And, and at $20 a month for eight years, after seven figures for eight years, it really became some of the most productive years of my life. And I, for the first time in my life, I actually helped somebody else yeah. besides me. And I, and I found so rewarding to serve others. Yeah. I continued that. When I joined, helped others develop and be and show empathy and be an advocate for the employees that work for me yeah. and things that I'd never done yeah. in my 30s. So it's just such a different way and listening well and being there for them and helping them get promoted yeah. instead of me. I was already CEO and just so rewarding to, to help others. And so it was such a different style, yeah. God's way instead of my way. And so, so much of your ministry and work since then and your ministry now is really helping people to integrate their Christian faith with their everyday work. So what do those conversations look like? Of course, not everybody has a story like yours where they're coming out of prison and having kind of getting a chance to start over. For so many of probably all of our listeners or most of them, 
Um, they may be stay-at-home moms like Ginger was in her situation, or they, they may just be executives, or they may be mid, middle to lower level leaders or, or employees, but they're serious about their faith. They just don't know how to integrate those things. What, what kind of things would you say to them? I would say this, that through this journey of becoming a Christian 25 years ago, at, uh, uh, the month after I turned age 41, that Colossians 3.23 was really, uh, Chuck Colson was one of the, that mm. whatever you do, Whatever you do, do it with all your heart like you're working for the Lord and not for man. Mm. So that means not just your church life, but your work life. Uh, no matter if you're at a grocery store or a post office, to be the salt and light no matter what you do. Yeah. And, and, and through eight and a half years being discipled by Chuck Colson, I, you know, I, that really grabbed my heart. And I learned after I got out of prison and back into, into corporate America and blessed to be back in corporate America after that, uh, after that uh, shenanigans of, of the largest <laughs> price-fixing case in history, uh, it was all about serving other employees. And, and for example, I worked for Coca-Cola Consolidated for a few years now, and we're, we're different than Coke Atlanta. We're a faith-based mm, company. Yeah. And our purpose statement, we're the bottling side, the largest bottler in America. And it's a different CEO and a different board and different uh, ownership. And our purpose statement is to, our, is to honor God in all we do. Our official purpose statement, honor God in all we do, to serve others, yeah. pursue excellence and grow properly. But it's all God in the center. Yeah. We have 102 plant sites, a chaplain in every one. Hmm. Hundreds of, uh, hundred, over 100 prayer groups and, and, and Bible studies. We have a discipleship program. We subscribe all our employees to Right Now Media, oh, uh, 16,000 yeah. employees, yeah. which is the Christian content, yeah. kind of the Netflix of, of Christian content. And it's all about God in the middle, almost mm. like being a, a ministry that happens to be in the beverage business. Yeah. And yeah. we actually train other CEOs that aren't related to Coke Consolidate. We call it T-Factor. Huh. And we have 250 each quarter that we bring in virtually now since uh, COVID. And we bring in and help equip them to integrate faith in their company. Yeah. And yeah. you do it for God, but it's also good for your business. Tell us about where, so my guess is that there are people listening to this who think, I want to do that, but that's not legal, or I don't know how it's legal in my company. Where, where can they go find some information about how they can begin to integrate these kind of things? Well, for one, we'd be happy to invite them to, to T-Factor, my email address. We can get, you know, mark.whitaker at coconsolidated.com. And there's also a tfactor.com website okay. that has our contact information to go to T-Factor. And we have our attorney's share. That's part of the, one of the sessions. How all this is legal. As long as you don't require someone to see a chaplain, as long as you don't require someone to come into a Bible study or a prayer group, as yeah. long as you make it all optional, and our lawyers share this in detail, this is all legal. We're a publicly traded company yeah, yeah. on the NASDAQ doing this. It's completely legal, and we've been doing it 23 years. Wow. And never wow. once, uh, a lawsuit, never once. Ginger, I want to ask you a question. So many of our listeners are uh, stay-at-home moms or working moms whose husbands, maybe maybe their husbands claim to be a Christian, maybe they don't, but they probably feel a lot like you did, where my husband is working real hard to be successful. He's uh, He really is trying to climb the ladder. He's trying to take care of our family, but maybe he's a little bit distant or aloof. How would you encourage that wife with that husband? Well, I would have to say um, prayer. Uh, mm -hmm. I prayed for Mark for over 10 years um, because of where he, the situation he was in. He was so becoming so addicted to the material things of this world, the car, the jet, the clothes, the pens, anything that was just so material. Um, that, But I just kept praying for him and just praying that God would intervene and would um, change Mark, would transform him. And he did. I mean, it took 10 years. I mean, I had no idea it was going to be. 
uh, a case like this that was going to cause a transformation, but I'm thankful every day that God had the same plan uh, to transform Mark into the man that he is today. It's been a, a, a remarkable change, I can say. So you guys now, it's it's been 33 years since all this went down. You're and 43 in your, married now. 43, 43 years month. married, which you said you're in the one percentile of marriages that survived yes. that length of yes. imprisonment. Yes. Um, I'm just curious, as you guys, I mean, y'all been together since 13 and 14, which is amazing. You guys look back now over that period of time and all that you've been through. What do you think about? What do y'all talk about when you kind of reflect on that together? <laughs> that God was with us every step of the way. We could not have survived um, without our faith um, and uh, just God's protection over us. I think just being faithful. I knew that God wanted this to come to be brought to the forefront with the FBI. Um, never did I expect that Mark would have to go undercover. I thought we would just tell them they would tape some things and plant some people in there. Uh, but I think it was just being faithful and continuing to be faithful uh, and knowing that he would protect us. I just felt like he was going to protect us the whole time. And not saying that everything was smooth, but he did. God was with us on every step of this journey. Wow. And and, that, and the companies that I stole from gave her a, a whistleblower award of my kids because it was going on for 12 years. It would never have been exposed without her. So the companies I stole from helped, helped take care of my family wow. when I was in prison. She, they even paid for her to go back and be a school teacher at age 40. Wow. And she was teacher of the year of our whole city in 2007. <laughs> And now one of the larger victims was the Coca-Cola brand from the high fructose corn syrup on the price fixing. And I worked for a company that I was stealing from 30 years ago. Man, only the Lord can, only, can turn those kind exactly. of stories. It's unbelievable. Yes. Mark, your story um, was basically what I would call Hollywooded uh, by the movie called The Informant mm-hmm. with Matt Damon. It was a comedy, which didn't really portray the whole truth of the story. It was just kind of a funny situation. And it ends with you going to prison. The Discovery Channel uh, kind of tells the fuller story, and there's multiple books about this, too. Three Where books, can people yeah. find this information? Well, there's a website, markwhitaker.com, and it has, like, the Discovery Channel documentary. It has the movie on there, too. It has the th- about the three books. Uh, one of the books came out a lot later because two of the books were published right when I went to prison because a lot of people that was following the story, that was the end of the story. But one of the books came out 10 years later and talks about the faith journey and Chuck Colson and being created. It kind of tells the whole story like yeah. what we're sharing, yeah. uh, sharing here, sharing here today. It's called Mark Whitaker Against All Odds. It's also on the on the website, yeah. uh, the link to that book. And it has our testimony on there, a little more detailed testimony. I think everything is probably there, the books. and But the books were all serious, real serious dramas, all three. And Hollywood kind of making a comedic uh, twist to it. The FBI did not like that. So they did a documentary to combat uh, the yeah. movie. And that's Discovery Channel that came out six months out. And people watched that documentary with the three real FBI agents. Yeah. And with Ginger and I interviewed, too. And they watch that, and they watch the movie, and it's two different, yeah, two different stories. It tells the seriousness that these guys would have killed you yeah. as you're wearing a wire, and the suicide attempt, and the movie even took the suicide attempt out because being a comedy, yeah, they filmed it and, and cut that out, so it missed so much. Yeah. It would have been a lot better story to be the rest of the story, but it was a director who was an atheist, and he just wasn't interested. He wanted a crime drama that was entertaining, and he wasn't looking for a, a redemption story or a faith journey. Well, I'm really grateful for you guys sharing the whole story with us. And so I hope folks will go to markwhitaker.com. You can see where the books are there, the movies are there, and hear even more of the story. Guys, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having us.
before we wrap up, one quick reminder. Do us a huge, tremendous favor. Go to Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating, a brief review. It may take 10 seconds to do that, but it goes a long, long way in helping us spread the word about the Christ and Culture podcast. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.